Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello. This is episode 31, and today we're doing an interview with Bill Gay. Bill Gay is the current leader of the 2nd Cavalry Brigade Band and the 6th Ohio Mounted Buglers. He was the co-founder of the America's Brass Band and Saxton's Cornet Band. Bill has been uh, very important in this early American brass band revival movement, and we are extremely excited to have him on the show today. Yeah, it's definitely great to get uh, the perspective of someone who's started or been involved in the early days of, I think, four, if not more, <laughs> of these uh, you know Civil War era reenactment bands. Um, so. It was really, really great to have him on, and we're glad that he took the time to speak with us. If you like what you're hearing, you can support the show on Patreon and Teespring. Uh, you can also find us on all social media platforms, and uh, we have a website. It's eabbpodcast.com. There are a lot of resources as well as show notes for each episode up there with a bunch of links to things that we mentioned in the episode or things that are relevant to each episode. So we do hope that you'll check that out. And I think 31 episodes into this, I'm finally getting a little better at doing that <laughs> whole stretch. <laughs> so I think uh, I think without any further ado, we can get into episode 31 with Bill Gay. So here it is. Thank you so much, Bill Gay, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your morning to speak with us. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Can you give us a little bit about your background of, you know, kind of how you started musically and maybe uh, how you got interested in the field and what brought you up to your first major experience with early American brass bands? Well, sure. Um, as most others, I started uh, playing cornet in elementary school. Everybody starts in elementary school, it seems. <laughs> yeah. um, but what was unusual about me is living in Southern California, at the uh, tender age of 13, I joined a very professional quality youth band, the Long Beach Junior Concert Band. And what was, it was huge. It was over 100 players plus pageantry. And because it was a youth band and not a school band, Hollywood and others would use that band for promos. We do movie openings, be in the movies, Rams games, used the fanfare trumpets for an Olympic once out there. So it got me very used to the entertainment side of playing in bands and it instilled into me the need to really entertain the people, which uh, I carried through to historic Civil War bands. I uh, played in the youth band up until college. Uh, became a music major in college and wanted to be a band director. Spent several years in college because I enjoyed it so much, you know, the 12 years senior type thing practically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and played in the marching bands, joined the choir, you know, just like that. And it started as a brass major, ended up a voice major. And it was in my first year of college when I got involved in my first Civil War band. Awesome. So was the Civil War... Uh, and that Civil War band kind of more or less a, a random encounter, or had you been interested in the Civil War and history kind of prior to that? Well, I always loved the Civil War history, and I love bands. So a fellow recruited me into a reenactment unit in 76, probably 76. And uh, I went to the reenactment. I was laying in camp with him under the stars with the fire and all that, and I just mentioned to him, Hey, you were in, you're in marching band at Cal State Long Beach. I'm in the marching band at Long Beach City College. Didn't they have bands in the Civil War? Could we combine our interests? And he goes, they did have bands. And then that was the genesis for the America's Brass Band right there. My very first reenactment. Very cool. Gotcha. How was the, the process of kind of getting that band together? I know you guys both knew that that music existed what kind of research went into forming that first band and how did you get the decide on the instruments that you used and, and all that kind of stuff for that, that very first project that you put together? Well, we were so interested in the idea as soon as we got home the next day, I think we got together and went to the library and we found some of those early 1960 publications of Civil War bands. I still have some of those books and we poured through them 
we had no idea any other Civil War bands existed, reenactment bands or recreation bands. Mm -hmm. So we were just going kind of off the books. So we hit uh, antique stores and all. And our very first set of instruments were everything from Shepherd's Crook cornets to side action marathon trumpets to marathon altos and tenors. We had a trombonium. You've ever heard of that crazy instrument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Very nice. E-flat tubas. We got the percussion together. And the very next reenactment, uh, we got our schoolmates involved. We threw together some uniforms and played the next month's reenactment. So it was really fast, the very first incarnation. Very cool. So you were kind of basically going out, trying to find as old of instruments as you could kind of thing. Uh, yeah, when you were getting photographs of the original bands best we could, that's all we knew to do. When you were getting instruments like uh, like tromboniums and such at the time, did you think that those were Civil War period or again, you were just trying to go as kind of early as you could find at the time? No, we knew they weren't the Civil War horns exactly we were finding in the books. We were getting as close as we could at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Early on, after we got that set together and played our first gig, we stumbled across the fact that a band called the First Brigade Band existed. And immediately, oh, where do you get your instruments? We play close as we can get. And we got a letter back from them saying, which is ironic since that was 1976, that they were saying, where do you get your instruments? Because we can't get <laughs> these antiques forever. We're starting to look at maybe getting reproductions or something instead which they never did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Wonderful band playing those original horns. Music was a problem. We used little elementary band book collections for Americana, the first gig. But after we discovered the first Brigade band, we found the Fresnel recordings uh, that they mm-hmm. did in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And with my first year music uh, theory class knowledge, I started actually listening to the record over and over again and pulling off every single instrument, writing it out on a score. Oh, wow. And I think it got it pretty accurately. So we were playing some of the more basic tunes right off of uh, transcribing it off the record. Oh, that's incredible. And that's in some ways kind of more authentic to the time period too, right? Hearing music and writing it down or or borrowing it from other bands in that way. So that that's really cool that you were able to kind of find the music that way. Yeah. Definitely helps to internalize it a lot, <laughs> a lot better when you're wearing yeah. out the record. <laughs> so years and years later, when we started getting the microfilm and for our arrangements, it that old knowledge helped me because as you guys know, the original microphone parts, when you put them on a score, do not always match up. Those, there's all kinds of mistakes in that music, and you have to make an editorial decision on how to fix it to make your plan works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, this might be going back a bit, but when you're talking about the early days of the Americus brass band there, what was kind of the goal of the band. I mean, hearing you talk through, you know, like how you're getting instruments and how you're getting music really reminds me a lot of how Chris, um, you know, started the band at at Mason and, you know, just getting instruments that are close to Civil War era, you know, and then gradually approaching your way back. But I mean, and and talking to you um, and talking to uh, Richard Berkmeyer last week, well, I guess that was just a few days ago for us, but (laughs) when the episodes get released, it was a couple weeks ago. Um, Was the goal to do reenactments? Was the goal to kind of like, you know, a little bit of self-education about the music of the time period? Or or what what were you guys, you know, really trying to do with that first, you know, the early days there? The very first, we just wanted to be, we wanted to bring something to the Civil War reenactment living history world. And what we thought we could contribute is our musical knowledge and our band knowledge. Um, but what happened very early on is we discovered and the amusement park world discovered us. So even in its first year, we started working at the Knott's Spray Farm Amusement Park. And they just started hiring us as a professional band. At first, we were just doing weekends only. But later on, it became a full-time job for many of the members of the so then it started to become difficult to do living history because we had all these weekend engagements at the big amusement park. 
uh, it sort of created a bit of a rift in the band. I was more interested mm -hmm. in living history. Some of the band men were thinking, well, now we've got professional gig. I kind of liked the idea of making money doing it. So there was a bit of a money hassle because some members of the band, the leadership wanted to hold the money together to buy horns and even buy everybody a rifle, which never made any sense to me. Um, <laughs> I was torn between keeping the money all together to buy more horns and uniforms and making a living because I was an 18 year old kid going to college. I thought this could be a good money maker for me. Uh, I only stayed in the original incarnation of America's band, which we called the fourth Georgia regimental band then for maybe two, three years before I thought I'm going to start my own union band and we're going to do things a little different. So yeah. So for a while there, I was out of the, the America's brass band. Is that union band that you formed a few years later a, a group that was in California also, or did, did that go somewhere else? No, it was in Southern California. I'm still in Southern California at the time. It, it did a few gigs and parades and all, but in reenactments, but it sort of fell by the wayside. And I was out of the brass band world, still doing bugling and other reenacting until 1984, where I joined the 16th main band that would also go by the Union Brass Band, a fellow named Dean Mora, who's still an active musician in California, I believe, uh, started that band and I joined up and we used a match set of Rob Stewart reproduction horns. Nice. And I got to learn the pros and cons of using that. I stayed in that band. We tried the Rob Stewart horns and although they're wonderfully made and they're beautiful horns, if you shut your eyes, in a band full of reproduction horns plays and then a band of original horn plays you can hear the difference the your reproduction sound heavier kind of brighter more sizzly more like a modern modern horn same thing is if you put modern mouthpieces in the horn you sort of then turn them into a hybrid reproduction original horn so i feel you should use original mouthpieces and you should use original horns. Um, otherwise, just the thinness and thickness of the metal, the shallowness of a couple of the mouthpieces at all, it just changes the sound. Mm -hmm. It also, I found it's easier to play the original horns in tune when you use the deep V mouthpieces. You can bend the notes so much easier. Once you get used to those little rims, I think our endurance is better on. They sure keep you honest, and there's no pressing that horn against your mouth hard to try to like keep going. You gotta yeah, keep yeah. touch. So yeah, that's yeah. my feelings. Is keep it all original if you can. Do you have a personal collection kind of amassed as well, or are you kind of uh, not not super interested in amassing a, a personal collection of horns? I if I could afford it, I love these horns. Of course I would. <laughs> I actually owned a full set uh, that the Saxton's band used. And although some of them didn't have to be used all the time, because as you get, there's a big turnover when you start a band usually, but as you get your guys that stick around, they start buying their own horns. Mm -hmm. So I had a full set of Civil War band instruments and I sold them to the band when I moved to Ohio. And after several years, I started missing them and regretting that I sold them. Just a few weeks ago, I visited Mark Elrod back east. And he says, hey, Bill, you remember this horn? And I looked, I go, that's my old alto, my old over-the-shoulder alto. I played in Saxton's Elrod Bot. <laughs> Why did I sell that? So anyway, no, I only own maybe personally two horns, two or three, <laughs> two B-flats, but like I say, the band itself will end up owning the set. Before I rejoined the America's Brass Band in 1986, in time for the 125th anniversary reenactment, we'd go back east and play all around. Gotcha, gotcha. So when you uh, rejoined the Americas at that point, was that as a member, or are they still bringing you on kind of in a, 
a leadership advisory kind of position? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't a leader at all at that time. I was no longer considered co-founder leader. I was just a bandsman. As uh, <laughs> David Goins uh, joked around with the America's uh, Saxton's Band interview, I would demote myself to the position to make room for better players. I do that even today. So I played alto in that band and I played bass drum in that band, wherever they needed me. I was just happy to be back in it because I had missed it by that. Gotcha, gotcha. What what kind of events did you guys do uh, for the 125th at that time? Oh, we did the uh, 125th Manassas battle. A big Texas regiment hired us and flew us out there to be part of that. Nice. We came back for the 125th Gettysburg reenactment. So. But we were also doing movies at that time, um, still playing at the amusement park. And at that time, some of the members were full-time musicians at Knott's Great Farm and Disneyland. They were hired as Civil War musicians at those parks, or they were... No, yeah. no, at Knott's Great Farm, we fit the theme. So they were the, uh, like, Knott's Great Farm militia band. Okay. They didn't ghost down there. But at Disneyland, they would play, wear all different kinds of costumes and play all different crazy instruments. Yes, it makes sense. So you were involved with Americus when they did, uh, was it Gettysburg and Glory as well? Were you a part of the band for those projects? I missed out on Glory just by a few months because I headed out east and to start the Saxton's band. But Getty, yeah, and Gettysburg movie was odd because they used the sound of the America's band, but they used the movie, they used the image of my Saxton's band. We played live there too, but they already had it in the can. They didn't realize my band could also play. And so that was a little bit of irony that an old band and a new band came together for the uh, Gettysburg movie. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. I knew when I was going to go out east with Dr. Philippa Burgess, who was like my partner and co-conspirator in getting Saxons together, we were buying up instruments in California to prepare for the Kentucky band. So it was a project kind of overlapped with America. Gotcha. So so did you end up living in Kentucky or you just happened to, to form the band there? No, we lived there. Um, she, Dr. Bur uh, Burgess was getting her doctorate in early brass band American music. That's what she did her doctorate dissertation on. Mm -hmm. um, and researching it out was part of the reason for starting Saxton's. And I got to be a research assistant and putting that dissertation together. So I learned a lot more than I, I knew previously from that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's got the dissertation book out there and she did a good job on that. But that's yeah. why we moved to Kentucky and lived in Kentucky. When Americus was getting put together versus when Saxons was getting put together, there was different uh, information that was readily available on Civil War brass bands. And, you know, obviously the, the knowledge within people of the community grew between that time. What are some, I don't know, it's a good way of asking this, maybe what are some differences between the two in terms of founding them or maybe... Uh, I don't know, Stephen. What what am I thinking? I guess you know. How did the processes for for both bands differ? I mean, I know I know that starting both bands differ. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot a word there. But I know you were you were you know younger when the Americus brass band started. So obviously with Saxons you had a little bit more experience and you know knowledge. But maybe you know kind of what what were the differences? Probably mainly with the goals of the two bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'd assume they'd be somewhat different. Yeah, that was in 1989 that we started the Saxons band, so it's still pretty early. Some of the goals were the same. We hit right in the golden years of Civil War reenacting, so we were busy. We got a lot of good paid gigs and uh, living history gigs at the time, but we also would play more for the academic setting as well at the universities, which Americans did to start out doing. We played at the International Tuba Euphonium Conference. We do university recitals, but we'd also be out and be a battle band in the field. And another thing we had talked about is I got into vintage dancing so that I could better interpret the dance music of the period. And we ended up getting picked kind of a 
found by the vintage dance societies and we play a lot of balls too with the band. Americans and Saxons kept very busy doing a lot of the practical actual things that the original bands of the era did. Mm -hmm. With uh, Americus and when that formed as like a, a reenacting type of unit specifically, you know, for reenactments, I'm assuming you guys would go out and do the overnight things. Did that type mm -hmm. of overnight camping eventually dwindle with Americus? And then likewise, was that ever a component of Saxton's kind of existence? It always was because I felt, you know, it grounded us and kept it in context of what it was. So the poor old Americus band, even when they got to be professional full-time bandsmen because of starting out in, in the Civil War band, would still take to the field and stay in tents. Saxton, same thing. These guys uh, didn't really own any of the camping equipment, but we'd erect a big assembly tent with a stove in it, and we'd all have to sleep in it. We found it a very good bonding experience, and like I said, he'll put it all in context of our living history, material, culture experience, you might call it. So no, oh, Saxton's, for the 10 or 11 years I was in charge of Saxton's band, we still would sleep in the field for a reenactment. And if we had a nice tour or a regular concert series, we stayed in hotels. So we kind of had a good both ways. Yeah, there you go. What, what do you see as the role of maybe at first a Civil War reenactor just as, you know, a, a, an infantry, you know, type of field reenactor in terms of Civil War education to the public and then applying that to a brass band who sees themselves as Civil War reenactors as a Civil War brass band? What is maybe their role in education for the public? I think it's an important role because any Americana history that we do properly and right can educate either by reading about it or watching it in the field and seeing everything just right. Some people think I'm a bit of a hardcore because I'm so insistent on every detail being correct, but that's why I do it because I think our role is education. Uh, it's why we use period glasses. It's why we get every button stitched right on our, our uh, uniform buttonholes. And everything we try to do is just, just try to get perfect. So yeah, I think it's education. But my philosophy is the only way to educate people with these bands is to entertain them too. So without sacrificing any authenticity, we try to be as lively and as exciting and as relevant in the context of performing as we can, because they go hand in hand. The show business aspect, which was true back then too, of being entertaining, and the historic aspect can come, come all together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. That That makes a lot of sense. Have you had any experience with the idea of bias maybe tainting authenticity or select interpretations maybe affecting uh, the quality of the education that the reenactors are trying to give? Well, sure. Um, it's maybe the political correctness of revisionist history can get in the way of a proper display of educational entertainment. And we don't feel very bad about, our conscience is clear, because of our goal of telling the story as it really was. It's sad is that we're an all-male band, for one thing. There were no women in Civil War bands. There's no documentation whatsoever there ever was. Now, that hurts, because of, think of all the uh, fine players we could use if we could allow women in the band. But if we did that, we're letting the lady, young ladies of today think there was never a struggle. There was never a time when women were not allowed to do certain projects. They can think that, oh, women can do anything men can do, they always could. But that's not true. So in a way, if it, I don't know if that's what you mean, but we don't right. sacrifice any historicity for political, political correctness. And, and I understand Saxton's new take on they're going to drop the uniforms, drop 
the living history material culture from their project, wear modern concert attire and have women and men all together. And that's fine and important because they can still authentically recreate the sounds of the time period. Mm -hmm. And now they're telling half the story, but that's mm -hmm. not really a horrible thing. If I wouldn't feel terrible about being in a university Civil War band or modern concert attire and had men and women all mixed in together. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's important to tell the whole story. Yeah. Also, you were asking what, what's the importance of modern Civil War band recreations is it puts a link. It helps tell where we are today with wind ensembles and brass band. It helps us understand where we are now by where they started out. I think that's another important reason to do these bands. Yeah, and that, that's been a major theme through the, the podcast or the project that Siva and I are doing too. We keep on coming back to the fact that, uh, you know, students of music a lot of times go through college programs and play in bands and study music history and come out and all they know is like orchestral history. They don't know anything about the band history that they're going off into the world to teach, you know, so knowing this brass band tradition the civil war history we think is important for fully informing you know what people are planning on doing out in the career in public education with teaching bands and stuff you know kind of providing the full context for stuff there can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what you have going on currently and and your current bands and multiple projects that you have going on well sure after it was time to leave Lexington, Kentucky and get a job at the Ohio Historical Society, I took a job there. Um, we actually sold the Saxton's band all the instruments, uniform music. We owned it all back to the band. And then went, went and I took a break from Civil War Brass Band for a while in Ohio. Hmm. Uh, after a while, of course, I missed it. And then uh, a fellow named John Huffman uh, I found out he was starting a Columbus-based uh, Civil War band, the 73rd OBI Regimental Band. And so I joined up with them and played it with them for a while. And I still do. I'm still a, a, a faithful member of that infantry band. But yeah. after doing that for several, several years, um, 2017, as recently as that, is when I started my own band because I thought, well, heck, I've done a lot but there hasn't been a lot of representation of the Civil War cavalry bands, and there were a lot of them. And so somebody needs to do a mountain brass band, a Civil War era mountain brass band. I had a lot of horse experience from my Kentucky days, because when I moved to Kentucky, what are you gonna do? You gotta buy a horse. <laughs> and so I got pretty good at riding out there, and eventually, after moving to Ohio, took a job as a full-time horseman. I was a full contact jouster traveling all around the country for a living, literally trying to knock people off horses, <laughs> to be pretty good at riding horses. And so after I retired from that, joined a Civil War band, it wasn't long after until I wanted to put those interests together and do a mounted Civil War band. Gotcha. Were, were you by any chance? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, I was just going to ask an unrelated question. If you ever did anything at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, because I my I grew up pretty close to where they have that, and there was always in the summer there was the like the end event for the day was like a joust because they had a story that ran throughout the day throughout the whole fair. Yeah, and I lots of have been there. We did Texas, we did uh, there's Maryland, Canada, Florida, but we didn't do the Pennsylvania one. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's not a huge one, but it, it it was always a you know like a school field trip that we would do. <laughs> but that's funny uh, too. <laughs> of course, I I brought fanfare trumpets out and I was playing like Renaissance natural horn stuff in between Maybe. my jousting because of course I had to. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> so, uh, can can you give a little bit of the the historical background and context for these mounted brass bands? We haven't had the opportunity to talk about this type sure. of ensemble or this type of variant, you know, on the show before? Well, precisely like the infantry bands at the very first years of the Civil War, um, cavalry regiments were allowed to have a 16-man brass band, every regiment. And as we all know, with the attrition rate in regiments, 
pretty soon it took about four regiments to equal the original number of a regiment and they'd form brigades out of the regiments and they fought there were too many brass bands so just like the infantry uh each brigade could and often did a cavalry brigade would have a brass band uh their duties were precisely as the infantry brass bands with the added uh chore of during battle most often the cavalry band stayed mounted and uh, would escort the troops and do everything that the cavalry troopers were doing but on uh, you know their brass instrument uh the band i've been studying the most is uh general custer's band the michigan brigade band and that band started out as a hired group of professionals by the seventh michigan their colonel was rich and so he purchased the band and at the time custer took over at around the time of gettysburg um it was still a regimental band because it was a hired band it wasn't dismissed with the other regimental bands when it turned into a brigade band uh custer took that band away from the colonel added guys from all the different regiments of his brigade and came up with his own band that meant mounted band acted as a bodyguard for him and all his battles the famous battles you hear about custer fighting in the civil war were accompanied to a soundtrack he'd play with them right on the battle line or he'd have them play on the battle line right with him and even in a few instances like a trivillian station where they got surrounded the band was forced to draw sabers and help hack out of a trap of an encirclement and so the bandsmen had to train as actual fighting combat troopers as well, which I'll never understand how that poor tuba player managed to yeah, hack his way out of a trap with the big over-the-shoulder tuba at his side. And so they yeah, did it somehow. Right. <laughs> they stick the saber in the bell and then use the the instrument as a holder. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe that contributed some of the dents. You know, they were whacking people on the head with their tuba. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel sorry for them. I mean, that must um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and Sheridan had a band. Um, a lot of the regiments, the cavalry regiments, had a band. You had the flare. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Was there any variant of the type of instruments that were used uh, on them, or were they using the same equipment that uh, infantry regiment bands would be using? I wondered that myself. And when I was putting this together, I thought, well, I guess we won't get to have percussion. There's no way they used a full percussion section, and I've never seen drawings or photographs of timpani. So I guess I guess no drums. And then I researched more. I found out those cavalry bands were precisely like the infantry band, including snare, bass, and cymbals mounted. Yeah, well. I I found photographs of a mounted snare drummer. I've uh, researched and figured out how they uh, strapped on the bass drum attached it to the saddle, laying out flat to the guy's side with the big horse surcingle around it. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reason for that is our bands were considered, our cavalry was considered sort of dragoons in the dragoon tradition where they were expected to get off their horses quite often and fight on foot. Mm. You can't do that with a timpani, but you can have all the musicians and percussionists dismount and march around, march the troops around on foot. Till they get back to their horses so yeah it was just the same as the infantry bands uh except they were generally no more than 16. gotcha yeah that's incredible did the music they played differ uh you know obviously you're detailing a lot of the, the differences between a cavalry band and you know kind of like a let's say like a foot <laughs> regimental band, but I'm wondering if, if the repertoire or the music changed along with their like slightly different function, you know, in a day-to-day -day life. I don't believe so. I've never found a set of cavalry books, but in my research, I found a lot of the repertoire they played. They, like Custer would use tunes to signal his men on what they were going to do. When Custer had his band, which was right next to him, strike up Yankee Doodle, there's eyewitness quotes. There's the troopers that had right memories say all hands went to their saber hill because it meant there was going to be a charge. So he used it kind of to inspire them and to signal a little bit of what they were going to do. What's what's the, the process like of trying to 
acclimate a horse to to accept having these things played on them? Is is there any type of training for that, or do they do they inherently like the sounds of baritones being played on them? They do seem to like it. I was worried about that at first, but a lot of my horses I'd have already been doing cavalry bugling with, and they're used to the cannons and the guns. Um, they adapted pretty fast. Um, the other new horses, we take them out before we do a show and we get them used to it. We let them smell the horns, feel the vibrations, all. We're finding that if the horses are feeling a little antsy before a parade, as soon as we start playing, they calm down a bit. Wow. And when we're, you'll see in our videos, if you look at some of our YouTube videos of us going down the street, watch their legs because they phase in and out a bit. But as we're playing, they start marching in step a little bit. And then one of them, you can see a photo or a video of us where one of them gets out of step and the horse next to him kind of goes over it, like he's going to take a nip out of him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was coincidence, but we like to say that they're trying to, they're trying to keep, keep in step. Yeah, there you but, go. <laughs> yeah, it's calming. We were worried about the symbols more than anything, but we, we still haven't had really a problem with the symbols. And do you put the symbols mounted on the bass drum or you have a separate symbol player? Separate symbol player. And uh, in fact, there's a Civil War diary from the symbol player in a mounted band. That, uh, mm. My co-conspirator John Connors is bound. And he's quoting from it and putting it on our Facebook page and all. But what we do is we strap the symbol to the symbol player's left thigh. No, right thigh. And then he keeps the other symbol in his hand. And it's, so he still has his hand on the ring and he just plays the symbol against the point. Bye. Are, mo are most of the players playing without holding onto the the horse, onto the reins then? Or are, do you find out a way to hold everything together? Yeah, every single player except the snare drummer has got their left hand on the reins. Um, they're playing one-handed. We've figured out some clever ways to put straps on the horns, mostly as a, oops, like something went wrong, and instead of dropping the horn, it just hangs on their chest. Mm -hmm. We have found that the over-the-shoulder horns work the best because now they're, they're resting on your shoulder and your hands on the mouse, your left hand's on them. The mm -hmm. snare drummer will loop usually the reins around his wrist, and we put him in the back in the middle a lot of times. And we find a horse that likes to follow other horses. And so he can play cadences along without really his hands on the reins so much. Yeah, there you go. Man, that's incredible. <laughs> So similar to kind of the question that we asked um, about comparing Saxons to Americus, did uh, the the mounted band have any similarities or differences to Saxons and Americus in terms of the goal, the formation, you know, kind of those same questions that we had earlier? Um, I formed the Second Cavalry Brigade band for the same reasons. I formed the Saxons band for education and, and educating by entertaining. The best thing outcome that's coming from the mounted band is we're bringing uh, American brass band music, original arrangements and sound and original horns to an audience that never would have seen them before. Hmm. Uh, 
a philosophy of mine is if you get everything perfect and then you play it in a right and you play a concert in a recital hall, but there's more people in the band than the audience, what are you really doing? <laughs> now, with our very first year of being a mixed instrument band was last year, and we had maybe 12 gigs, most of them with really big audiences. We played at the Henry Ford Museum at the Greenfield Village for Memorial Day, yeah. and thousands of people got to hear this music that maybe wouldn't have noticed it. We were on schedule this year before the pandemic shut everything down to play the Equine Affair in Columbus. That's a three-night event uh, in a Fantasia auditorium with 5,000 people for each of the three nights. We were going to go in there and play four tunes and bring in the American flag, and those people would have been a captured audience to hear the original you know, band repertoire. So we're finding that the horse band is so popular that it's really going to get those original arrangements out. A lot of people are going to get to hear them in all different kinds of venues. Yeah, and I, I've been seeing how actively the a lot of the Facebook content for the band is shared in circles kind of outside of the band realm too. You know, a lot of the, the I don't know, can call it more generic civil war fan page you know more just like history sites really latch on to sharing uh the the cavalry band videos and stuff also so yeah definitely sharing it with a, a large audience for sure it's the show business that i i learned about when i was just a little 13 year old kid in the youth band uh, the fact that the cavalry bands all had white colored horses so we all have white colored horses yeah. between us personally and two of the band members, we have nine of them. And then we have locals that are kind enough to lend us some others. So uh, when we go out there, they're matching white horses and it's really attractive and it really gets a lot of interest. It gets the people all around us. And then we play this beautiful music. I almost think that if an infantry band was say at Greenfield Village in one of the little lots playing, it would get some attention and people would love it. It would be great. But we ride up and march around in the parades on the horses or we pull up in a lot and people will run up to us because they all want to see the horses. Then we play the music and it's like, oh, it also keeps us really at, at a high level. We're up on horses. So when we do our parades and all, we're, we're more noticeable. Now. The horses are the real stars and we're just kind of playing our horn. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> One thing I hadn't, we hadn't talked about is how you do these bands financially might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The philosophy of America's band when it first started was the band would hold all the money and then end up paying a little back per diem to the guys to play. And, um, you know, we were some argument about that. When I started Saxton's band, we decided to try the approach that every dime the band took in, which was a substantial amount, would be evenly divided between each band members. I just used my own funds, our own funds, to buy all the uniforms and instruments. And the band would take one cut for maintenance and procurement of new horns. Mm -hmm. That worked all right, but it meant that the band's needs were being met slowly when it needed new uniforms, or it just cost out of pocket, my pocket. We started the second Calvary Brigade band, needed an LLC, and our philosophy is we're holding all the money to buy horns and uniforms and help take care of the horses right now. Uh, if we ever get everything we need, then the membership might be getting a bigger and bigger per diem per gig. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, you kind of have to work that out when you start a civil war band. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one of the, the benefits and drawbacks, I think, of the band that we have at George Mason University, you know, so we have the obviously the large university, the umbrella that was able to, you know, provide uh, the uniforms and uh, to some extent, you know, help reimburse for printing off of music and creating the music and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then through grants and stuff, we were able to get uh, instruments owned by the band, you know, so we have a band set of instruments, but kind of what you were saying when you start getting regular members in and they start buying their own, we're going to be cycling, you know, at a university every, 
if not every semester, you know, every few years, it's just going to be new members in the band. So there's no consistency in that regards. So no, all, all the consistency comes from the back end and, you know, the, the leader or whoever is going to be the leader at the time, you know, is kind of the consistency there. So it's nice to have a lot of the financial things covered, but then the, yeah, the drawback is the consistency of players. So there's no, there no, uh, no perfect answer, I think, but every, no every, band, every band will be able to find something that works well enough <laughs> for them. Might not be ideal, but there's, there's a, yeah. <laughs> you have the passion, you'll make it work. If you want to start a civil war band bad enough, you can make it happen. It's got to be creative sometimes. But for the consistency, your band and my band eventually should own a complete set independent of anybody's individual Because what if, if Corey moves to Hawaii because they made him a deal he couldn't refuse? I'd lose this E flat over the shoulder. I'd lose uh, the E flat alto. And, you know, we want to use funds to, to get a good set of instruments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. over the shoulder because it's easier to play on horseback. Yeah, true. I know, I think I saw online that you had non-brass band related projects as well. I know you were talking that you were uh, involved in the dancing and stuff, but I think, didn't you have, I, I don't know the exact term, forgive me, but didn't you have, or do you have like a wagon show or something like that also? We have a medicine show because you can't take the show biz amusement park completely out of me. So we play at West festivals and things at snake oil salesmen, sometimes accompanied by the band, brass band, dressed more civilian style. And we sell the snake oil and we have dancing girls. We've done saloon shows with the band and cabaret type shows. We do all kinds of fun projects and shows. And I always try to make them as historically accurate and entertaining as I can. We do dancing. Am I leaving out something we do? Uh, we do like uh, song and dance shows with the banjos and tambourines and the bones. One thing that's really helped our small band, we're not a very big, maybe six brass forms plus percussion usually, is when you do a ball, maybe four sets, they will fry your chops. <laughs> And it just so happens that almost every member in our band doubles on a string instrument. So the way we're getting around that when we play sit-down balls is we put the horns away for the Virginia Reel and some of the other dances and pick up fiddles, banjos, guitars, upright bass, tambourines, and we play the set with the string instruments to rest our chops. So there you go. If you guys have some doubles on string players, you grab a hold of them, they'll come in handy. Yeah, we yeah. use all the, the music ed majors that are going through all their instrument methods. You know, he just can pick up instruments so fast. He hadn't had much experience on it. And he played a very credible part in our last, last ball. Ah, there you go. That's awesome. Your, your career has been full of, you know, creating new projects and creating new impressions and, and doing all these wonderful things. Do you have anything kind of, uh, on the drawing board or any plans or uh, wish list items of things that you kind of want to get off the ground? Well, besides the side projects, which I'll always do, I really want to throw all my efforts in the mounted band and keep making it bigger and better. And if I have a fantasy wish project for the band would be for it to get up to 16 white horses to be able to take the field with a, a full size mounted band. Mm -hmm. And I think I can do that for like forever. It's been so entertaining and fun. And because just because we play on horseback doesn't mean we can't take a concert gig and a ball game. We have been. And they go pretty well. And their eyes light up right in the middle of a concert. I tell them, by the way, we don't just wear these cavalry jackets. We have horses. And the audience all want us to talk about that, even when they're not there. So I've yeah, hit it awesome. before, I think, with, with that uh that project <laughs> i would say that when you're just doing those concerts without the horses the horses are kind of free advertising for you but it's definitely not free <laughs> it's no, a lot of expense they eat, here. They eat a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i own a couple anyway i just own more because we need white ones for everybody in the band mm -hmm. 
a side project you're talking about, here's something interesting. We put a call out because we want to recruit more members that will learn to ride the horse. We'll teach them. You know, my girlfriend mm -hmm. is, was, is, uh, was a equestrian major. She knows how to train. I know how to train. We're keeping everybody safe and staying on horseback. But when we put out a general call to musicians, I got dozens of women who said, I love horses and I love playing horn. I want to be in the band that we felt so bad, we came up with a new idea. And this is sort of helps us twofold. One is we're getting so many gig calls that I'm afraid I'm gonna burn out my guys, right? The other is all these women wanna join. So we're starting to branch out and think of, we're going to do a new project that is a bit of a fantasy project in that, what if the US didn't get rid of their mounted bands at about World War II, that's, that's when the last of the military bands went away on horseback. What if they kept going? What would that band look like? And well, of course, they have women in the ranks, just like all modern So we're putting together a project where we'll wear uniforms in more of a modern cut. We'll use modern shepherd foot cornets and altos and tenor horns and all, be a little bit like a British brass band and also be able to offer people who hire us for, to have a more modern impression and let the women in that band and maybe eventually up to doing half the gigs and parades and some of the arena shows where it's not necessarily, doesn't have to be a Civil War band. It could be a continuing tradition mounted band. And yeah. that's how we're addressing the problem of the interest uh, ladies having in um, brass bands and riding horses, the aim yeah. military mount. Yeah, there you go. Do does does uh do the British have a mounted tradition also? Do you know? Almost every country in the world has a military mounted band. The Guards band in England, you can YouTube them up. Beautiful blues and royals, and, and some of the bands. They have timpanis, they have a full wind ensemble. They use not just brass horns, they use uh, reeds up on horseback too. Mm. Uh, South America has dozens of mounted bands. Spain, Italy, France. Uh, I don't think Canada has a mounted military. We're one of the few countries that our military doesn't have a mounted military band. And in fact, our recreated band is the only mounted military band in the country. Uh, there's a cowboy band out west that's pretty cool, but they don't try to ride in the rank and they play modern horns and arrangements. But mm -hmm. we're the only military one left in this country. It's just because yeah, wow. we're, we're a modern type army. I think that traditions of that kind don't mean as much maybe to our country as they do some of the European ones. We still have but, but at the same time, it's interesting that we have the old guard fife and drum corps. Right, that's definitely uh, an older ensemble for sure. <laughs> Why don't they have a mountain band? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you gotta. I know that the old guard has discovered us. We did a Kentucky Horse Park gig with our mounted bugler incarnation of what we do sometimes, and um, the old guard guys were very interested in the detail. They looked us over and decided they liked it. Wanted to have their picture taken with us. Uh, we did the arena ride through where we were playing fanfares in part harmony in front of them, and then the caisson horses were behind the modern guard caisson. So the modern military is discovering us. We did one county fair as a foot band during the day, and we were going to ride and play the Star Spangled Banner for the, before the tractor pull. Hey, it's a day to pay. Yeah, there you go. But we we're free to rove around anywhere we wanted on the fairgrounds. And we saw a military display in a big outdoor like space. And there were modern recruiters there. There were veterans there. And we walked up and started playing patriotic airs. And the guy that was in charge said, well, great. The brass band is here. He didn't know we were coming, but he goes, you guys look legit. So at 12 o'clock, we're bringing in the American flag and we want you to play Kansas, they march in and we play the Star Spangled Banner. And what are we going to do? We saluted and said, yes, sir. And we did it. <laughs> so, 
So who knows? Maybe the modern military will keep discovering us and maybe get something going on, on their own for a mountain band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Like I said, the, the social media presence has been taken off for you guys, so it, it's only from here. Yeah. I mean, nobody had that in, in the original days, but, you know, everybody's discovering in your band. People are discovering that band. It's pretty mm -hmm. I discovered you on social media. That, whoa, university band yeah i like that yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's a powerful tool for sure for discovering each other but then also spreading you know the the music and time period and stuff yeah it's wonderful yeah. <laughs> and speaking of social media this would be a great time to let people know <laughs> where they can find uh you guys on social media and how to get in touch with you you know if they're interested in talking further or maybe uh oh. looking to get on a horse, you know, when we're able to do that and gather and play instruments in a group of more than one oh, yeah. person. <laughs> we have, we'll have, we have workshops all the time of fellow bandsmen that want to like see what that likes to come on over and we'll put you up on a horse and you can give it a try. But we have a website now and we've just started that because we've been relying on Facebook. So we've got our website at www.secondcavalry.com band at weebly.com which we can send you in a message to or something we've got uh, for youtube and facebook you just search second cavalry brigade band and we'll pop up there and we have our e email address of second cav brigade band at gmail.com so people can get a hold of us that way yeah definitely and we'll, we'll have all sure that stuff linked on our website uh, we don't have a recording yet but we're, we're going to work on that yeah is, um, that, is I, that something in the pipelines right now oh yeah the first one i do i all my research of mounted bands because i'm looking at all sorts of books uh and gleaning out passages of the mounted bands i'm finding uh mention of what they played not the specific arrangement but you know you can say they like hail columbia they like yankee doodle they did this they did that so a recording with documentable uh tunes arrangements and then use the original arrangement might be what our first recording will be yeah that'd be great something that we haven't really seen since finel has been a recording of sights and sounds and maybe narration too you know i think maybe it would be cool to since john has that diary of a cymbal player and stuff yeah. maybe some recorded extracts of uh of actual diary entries or mm -hmm. you know the bugle calls or something that, that could all be really cool too <laughs> what what tunes custer liked his bands to play and all um big plop of the horses that they make a pretty good accompaniment when you got enough of them on the, the asphalt plopping it sounds really cool so we can yeah. put some together yeah that'd be awesome yeah. We won't put any sounds of shrieking members falling off their horse, though. We don't want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, that, that hasn't happened yet, as you said. So we'll try not to. Uh, try not as to... bands. We also do combat bugler impressions, though. And yeah, there's been a few spills playing bugle. Oof. Yeah, you, you have to ask John Connors about Connors falling. <laughs> we'll be sure to ask him. Oh, man. <laughs> Were you involved at all with Steve Sharpie's two mounted albums? Only in admiring them. So those CDs are just capturing the music of those types of bands? He didn't have actual mounted bands uh, for either of those recordings? No, he didn't have mounted bands. And you've probably heard those beautiful recordings. Some of those arrangements are straight out of the microfilm. They're the right arrangements. Some of them are very Disney-esque. Disney and sound real snazzy hmm. and cool, but they're a mix. Makes they're sense. very well played. So I was going to ask uh, one one last thing. It, we um, we do a featured album every episode, and we were wondering. You know, you said you guys don't have an album yet, and we can always use your your like YouTube and Facebook as our featured album. But um, do you have maybe a favorite album of uh, this kind of music that you've come across? You know, in your uh, I'm sure you have a lot. Of, I'm sure you own a lot of them, but do you maybe have a favorite? I like the Saxons recordings. You know, they're using original instruments and original mouthpieces, all in original arrangements. Um, that's good. We have some of our sound on YouTube. 
but you know that's in a parade condition just spontaneous take a picture so it's not smooth perfect but it's not bad mm -hmm. those are good yeah. uh one thing we didn't cover real quick is changing arrangements to suit your ensemble we try to keep the arrangements as original as possible, but every once in a while we'll take the inner alto and tenor part and maybe change the voicing a little bit and not the rhythm to make sure the chord is full because the music was written for more like 12 or more horn. And sometimes we're doing our performances with only six or seven horn. So now that you've been involved with so many different bands and so many projects and stuff, have you ever kind of taken a step back and kind of viewed the American brass band revival movement as a whole and kind of reflected maybe on your personal involvement or maybe just the the trajectory of the movement itself have you ever been able to kind of reflect in any of those ways I'm sure I'm delighted as I can be that other bands are still being formed and it, it hurts my heart when I hear of one like Wildcat band or some of them going away. I'm just all for and supportive of all of them and all the forms they take. Um, because I like to do certain uh, things a certain way. Doesn't mean that I'm outraged when the other bands don't do things the way I do them. I just, I think the movement is better than ever, all aware of each other and supporting each other. Back in the earliest days, we had very little contact with other bands. Well, there weren't very many bands in the 70s, <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, cool. Yeah. I think it's growing and it's doing well. I think Civil War reenacting might be scaling back a little bit, but I think the quality is improved. So that doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I think yeah, yeah. people get less interested in places like Colonial Williamsburg or Shaker Town at Pleasant Hills, all these beautiful historic sites. It's more important than ever to take living history out to the field and go to where the people are and not necessarily wait for them to come to us. So I'd like to see all the, the brass bands just keep being active and just keep going. Do you think that maybe Civil War reenactors or that time period maybe suffers because it doesn't have a gem of a location like Colonial Williamsburg where it doesn't have such like a uh, largely accessible and what, mainstream kind of location for, for people to have access to? No, I don't think it's it's hurting too bad because after all we have Gettysburg. That poor old town is one big That's true. <laughs> I don't know. Not amusement park, but attraction. It's an attraction. So no, I think it's doing all right. I think with the Ken Burns series and all that and the golden age of Civil War mainstream reenacting kind of being forgotten and the popularity of the movie Gettysburg and all, uh, I think there's less interest in Civil War with young people and all, but that's why it's so important we exist to try to instill that interest. Yeah. Yeah, I know Stephen and I have enjoyed through this show kind of exactly what you were saying, trying to connect people in a lot of ways. We heard recently from somebody that listens to the show how they said that they've read uh, Dr. Sabina Klaus's work from the National Music Museum, and they've read her work before, but they never had the opportunity of meeting her. But getting to hear her on the show, you know, they felt like they met her and connected like that. And all other bands... Uh, members of bands that we haven't had an opportunity to, to speak with yet, but how they've said that they've enjoyed, you know, learning the history of the other reenactment bands and learning kind of what their philosophies are and their approaches and kind of where they draw the lines with certain things. You know, it, it's all helping improving both their bands, but then also just the, we think the community in general, which we really enjoy seeing also. Yeah. It, the podcast is definitely helping kind of catch people in another level.
Bill, we can't thank you enough for taking the time this morning, now this afternoon, for for chatting with us today and talking about your experiences with the bands and the projects you have going now and showing us your instruments behind you. It's been an an awesome way to spend the morning, and we're really excited to to share your experiences with everybody who listens. So thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to share it. Thank you again so much to Bill Gay for coming onto the show. It was really awesome hearing your experiences throughout, you know, starting and being involved with all these different bands and especially hearing about the Mountain Brass Band that you started up in Ohio and getting to hear the history behind that type of ensemble in the 19th century and hearing what it took to get that off the ground uh, recently. So thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah, definitely a unique group there uh, with the horses, obviously. <laughs> I, I don't know that there are many other, uh, well, he said in the episode, they're the only one around right now. So that was great. Um, and like you said, they're looking for, uh, you know, some leads on instruments, perhaps, and, and maybe some, some more members. So we'll definitely have all their information up on our show notes on our website. So if you're interested or want to talk to them or get in touch with them in any way, uh, you can go there to find their information as well as a bunch of resources. This episode's featured album is by the Saxton's Cornet Band, second band that Bill Gay helped form. This is Music of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865. This is a great album of music from that time period uh, of the Civil War, and it's all performed on original instruments and mouthpieces. So we hope that you go over to our show notes on the website and check out where you can listen to and purchase that wonderful album. Thank you again so much for tuning into the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We hope you tune into our next episode in two weeks. Thank you very much. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.